Well, everyone, I'm Pastor Will, one of the servants here at New Life, and it's my uh, privilege to give you God's Word here today. We are continuing along in a series in the, a portion of the book of Genesis looking at the life of Abraham. And so if you are visiting us and joining us for the first time, uh, we are in our fourth week in this series, so glad that you're here. Pray that you'll be blessed. And if you are all able, I want to ask you to please stand for the reading of God's Word. The passage, passage specifically will come from Genesis 14, the entire chapter, but for our reading, I'm going to start with verse 13 and then read to the end of the chapter. So Genesis 14, starting with verse uh, 13. This is God's word. It says, Then one who had escaped came and told Abram, the Hebrew, who was living by the oaks of Mamre, the Amorite, the brother of Eskel and of Honor. These were the allies of Abram. When Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men born in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. And it divided his forces against them by night. He and his servants had defeat and defeated them and pursued them to Hobah, north of Damascus. Then he brought back all the possessions and also brought back his kinsman Lot with his possessions and the women and the people. And after his return from the defeat of Chedorlaomer. And the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom, went out to meet him at the valley of Shaba, that is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten, and the share of the men who, are, who went with me. Let honor, Eskel, and Mamre take their share. And this is God's word. You can take your seats at this time. So we are continuing along in this series, and in chapter 14, it's a fantastical story about what seems to be a cosmic battle. It seems to even be greater than the Lord of the Rings, Return of the King, and it's an exciting adventure. There are different clans, better than Braveheart. There's about 10 kings that are named in the entire passage. Nine kings are battling with one another, but there's also teams among the kings, and so this is just a fantastical battle. But I think the message of Genesis 14 is really not about the battle between nations and between clans. It's really about the Lord's battle for Abraham's heart. That in the midst of this actual, historical, real militaristic battle, God is showing in his providence that he's really battling for his servant's heart. That's what he wants. The battlefield is not just going to be Canaan or Babylon. And perhaps you and I can understand the greatest battle that you and I will engage is this spiritual one, which is the battle for the allegiance of your heart. Now, in Genesis 14, we see God's promises for the first time begin to overlap with nationalistic, militaristic, secular history. The first time in the Bible is Genesis 14, where we see military war and conflict and from this point on, it catapults the history of humanity into war and battle. Even in the, 
history of Israel, it's going to be battle after battle, politics after politics, looking for a righteous and a fair king. But this is the first time in Genesis 14 where we see that type of battle, and it catapults human history down the spirals of human depravity. But behind all this, as I said, the real story, that climactic battle is not between the different kings. It's really a battle for Abraham's faithfulness, a battle for Abraham's heart. And that's why we can connect and resonate to say, in the midst of this world, we are engaged in a similar spiritual battle for our faithfulness, our holiness, and our idols that rule our heart. And there are three things as we look at this narrative that we can consider as we sort of read through the verses and look at what this passage is trying to teach us about this spiritual battle. One is telling us that in this world that you see around you, whether it's the Ukraine or in the past couple years of COVID or really gearing up to 2024 in a political battle, that in the midst of this uncertainty, God is in control of every detail. We call that God's providence. And that should give us reassurance. The second thing we see is a very practical application. What does faith look like in the midst of battle? We're going to look at Abraham's faith. And then thirdly, we'll say and apply this to ourselves and recognize that you and I, we are all in the same war. Those are the three things that we could look at. One, God is in control of this entire world. Secondly, we'll see how Abraham responded in his faith. And then thirdly, we'll recognize very practically that you and I are in the same spiritual battle. That's what we'll consider. So let's get right into it. The first thing in terms of the backdrop is for you and I to understand that God is in control of this world. We won't read the verses, not just because the names of the kings are difficult, but we can recognize that in verses 1 to 2, we're introduced to kings, nine kings. And the reason if you've been with us in the past several weeks that we're in this situation is because the nephew of Abraham, Lot, when he lifted up his eyes and he saw paradise and wealth in his selfishness and his self-centric tendencies and his life choices, he chose to go to the Jordan Valley, and that was outside of Canaan. But what we recognize here is that he was close to Sodom and Gomorrah, and he brought himself in the middle of this fantastical battle. Lot went to Sodom, and he put himself in the very heart of war between nine different kings. Now, here's the situation in the history behind this. It's not nine independent kings fighting each other, but there are basically two teams. You have four big kings, which the scholars will say suzerain kings. They're big state kings. And then you had five regional city-state kings. The four big kings, five regional small kings. They call the big kings suzerain and the small kings called vassals. And the relationship is very common back then. Basically, when the bigger king would conquer the smaller king, they would come out with a contract and saying, okay, I'm going to promise you peace. You promise me your loyalty and give me your money. But all you have to do is read the history books, and you'll recognize that it was a contractual arrangement, but it was completely corrupted. The bigger king would abuse, and they would torment the smaller nations. And that's what the situation we have here. So roughly after about 14 years, the five smaller kings in their kingdoms are saying, we're tired of being tormented, being oppressed. We're no longer paying the taxes. So they start a revolt. And that's why the suzerain kings, the four big kings, come over to take control 
and to settle the matters and to assert their authority and their power. That's the battle and situation. And the nephew of Abraham, Lot, he's right in the middle of this, and he actually doesn't have a bone in the game. Here's the thing to consider, friends. Sometimes it's only in hindsight when you realize that the decisions you've made were good or bad. And what the Bible is trying to tell us is that the decision Lot made was really bad. He made a bad choice. And he only recognized this after he made the decision. That's part of what the Bible talks about in God's providence. He made the choice because of money. It led him into war, led him eventually into captivity, and then he lost everything. He chose wealth, and towards the end of the chapter, you'll recognize that he lost his possessions, his cattle, his family, but he was saved by Abraham. Even the first two kings, their names in verse 2, they are really synonyms for the word evil or wicked. So the Bible is saying that the decision Sodom made was absolutely, the decision that Lot made was absolutely wrong and selfish. And sometimes you only know that your decisions are bad after the fact. But here's the thing. When we read this passage, our eyes and our hearts gravitate towards the exciting adventures battle but really, behind this cataclysmic battle, God has his eyes on Abraham's heart. That's what he's trying to tell us. He's in control of these battles. He's going to make his, sure his promises are true. But in the midst of this, he's saying, I chose Abraham. I'm going to put him to the test. Where does his heart lie? That's what the Bible is trying to tell us. This is important for us and you and I to understand as we apply this. Because we have to remember that we are today placed in similar situations, as I sort of alluded to already. Because as far as the world is concerned, the big things in the newspaper and social media are not really about your everyday lives. It's really about ratings. It's about getting more people to click on your social media, more people to subscribe to. The big things in the world's eyes are usually things that happen in New York City or London or Washington, D.C., or Beijing. But behind all that we see in this world and in this globe, God is working on the faithfulness of people's hearts. God is in control, and he's orchestrating, maneuvering in his providential control, his sovereign power to win people's hearts to himself. And not to dis downplay, really, the suffering and all the tragedy that happened during during COVID, but really, when you look back in hindsight, you may have realized that in the chaos and tragedy of all that has happened in your life in this world of COVID, that maybe you look back and there is clarity that you have on some of the decisions that you made. And what Genesis 14 pushes us to consider is that God was in control of COVID and all that happened across the globe. And in the midst of this, whether we realize it or not, God was fighting for the allegiance and the territory of your heart to continue to persevere and to live faithfully. And he does that here today too. We call that providence. Providence, and one scholar once said that you know, the attribute of God's providence is usually put back into the background, but it probably should be brought from the back row to the front when we think about God because it could give us a lot of comfort and reassurance. You know, this British theologian, Melvin Tinker, wrote a wonderful book on God's providence, and it's called Intended for Good. And he defines providence in this way. 
God, our Heavenly Father, working in and through all things by His wisdom and power for the good of His people and the glory of His name. Very simple. One way to think about this as I study the book of Ruth, as Ruth is all about Bethlehem and buying bread, is that one commentator said, well, when you go to the grocery store, you go to Trader Joe's or Whole Foods, and you buy a loaf of bread, the doctrine of God's providence tells us you should probably take a moment and thank the Lord for putting that loaf of bread there. Because as one scholar has said, it's ultimately God and not the grocer who stocks the shelves. The providence of God working in and through people and relationships and circumstances. Even in our heart of hearts, just being Christian or non-Christian, I think even non-believers recognize in something of providence. Maybe they call it fate. Maybe they call it chance or science. But there's something in which sometimes life comes together that comes out for the better. And that's why even non-Christians will say, that was providential. Friends, here's your application if you're a follower of Jesus. And I don't assume everyone is. Maybe you're struggling or inquisitive, or you're skeptical about Christianity, but this is a major point of Christianity that you can apply that I think will give you a level of comfort. It's saying this, you won't know every answer to everything that happens in your life, but providence sometimes comes to us in hindsight so that when we look back, we get clarity about life. It comes in months or sometimes years after the fact. But it's telling us that God's providence is showing nothing is random. And there's a real purpose and a point to everything that you see in this world. Even if we don't know the answer for this, God does. And that gives us a real comfort and assurance. You know, one of my professors, Dr. Vern Poitras, I think he had a couple of PhDs, one of them being at Cal State in mathematics. But he wrote this book, a Reformed theologian. And he wrote this book called Chance and the Sovereignty of God, a God-centered approach to probability and random events. Sounds pretty interesting, doesn't it? So for those of you who are engineers or mathematicians, you may resonate with this. But at one point of the book, he talks about Ecclesiastes, and he said this, time and chance will come to us all. And it sounds sort of ne negative or fatalistic. But if you believe in God, it forces us to trust God in the areas of life that we don't know. On the human side, chance is something, humanly speaking, we can't predict. The throwing of the dice, natural disasters, sickness that happens. In the Bible, chance is everywhere from the human side, disasters to Job. Servant Abraham finds Rebecca. Joseph's life in the book of Genesis later on. Even Ruth in Genesis 14. This meaningless battle between nine kings for power and for glory. From the human side, it seems that it's time and it's chance. We can't predict when it will happen, what will happen, but the doctrine of God's providence says in the midst of not knowing answers, you can trust God that he'll carry you through. That's how Melvin Tinker in his book goes on and says, in God's infinite wisdom, God has chosen not to tell us everything, but he'll let us know some things. Because Tinker is saying, God won't tell you everything that you would want to know because some things are going to be secret and only things that God will hold to himself. But he's saying that God has told you enough so that you can trust him and follow and obey him. He won't tell you everything, but he's told you and revealed enough to you 
so that you can believe in Him and trust Him. Because God has not spoken just to satisfy your curiosity, but He's spoken to enable you to live with Him faithfully. So do you know what that means? If you really wrestle with the doctrine of God's providence, it means on the basis of what God has already shown you, that's more than enough to trust God in the things He hasn't shown you. And so in your life today, whether you're going through sickness, financial distress, uncertainty in the world, the brutal injustices that you read on the news, maybe your own job and career, maybe it's as close to home as your marriage or children, maybe it's school and college, and there's so much unknown, and there's a lot of disappointment in this world and a lot of uncertainty. And the question you say is, God, tell me why you did this. But God in his providence is saying, I may not tell you exactly why this happened in your life, but I revealed enough to you so that you can trust me that I'm going to take care of you. That's the doctrine of God's providence. Because behind this cataclysmic, cataclysmic battle between nine kings, it's really, as I said, over and over again, it's a battle for Abraham's heart. It's a battle for his faith. And that's why in our second point we see does Abraham live up to the occasion? Does he live by faith? Or what does he do in the midst of the unknown? Does Abraham follow and obey God based on what God has already revealed, even though Abraham doesn't know the entire story or the answer to everything that happened in his life? This is Abraham's faith. It's in verses 13 to 16, but let's start out by reading verses 13 to 14. It says, Then one who escaped came and told Abram, the Hebrew, and it says a Hebrew because he's a foreigner, who was living by the oaks of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Eskel and Aner. These were the allies of Abram. When Abram heard that his kinsmen, that's Lot, had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men, born in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. Now, so we're seeing here the Lord is setting up a course of tribal and national history for the purpose of building up his servant Abraham. If we were disappointed with Abraham in chapter 12 because he lied and sold, wanted to risk his wife's life, Sarah, selfishly, if we're disappointed with Abraham in chapter 12, we're very proud of Abraham in chapter 14. Because after he hears that Lot was taken, what does Abraham do? Now, if I was Abraham, I'd probably be like, man, Lot, that good-for-nothing nephew, Try to be a gracious uncle. He chose first. He chose money. He said wealth was his paradise. Now look what he did. Most of us, if I'm kind of cynical, will say, good for nothing, Lot. I'm done. I wash my hands of this. He dug his hole, let him lie in it. But that's not what Abraham does. He springs into action as he hears this news. He was quick to work. See, sometimes, at least me, when I hear Abram, I, I picture this older sort of shepherd-like guy. You never realize that Abram was just a valiant warrior as much as he was just the father figure, Father Abraham. But in verses 15 to 16, you could read about what Abram did. It says this, he divided his forces against them by night. You know, strategic, comes by the cover of night. He and his servants defeated them and pursued them to Hobah, north of Damascus. Then he brought back all the possessions and brought back his kinsman Lot with his possessions and the women and the people. 318. Now remember what I said? There's nine, there's four suzerain, powerful nations and four kings and then five smaller kings. Abram, what does he have? 
318 guys. Some say symbolic, I'm not so sure. 318 guys. It reminds us of Gideon when he had 300 men. It reminds us of Leonidas and the Spartans of 300. And I think the reason that Abram was able to go and defeat all the other kings is not to say that he was some military genius, but it's to say God fulfilled his promises and he gave Abram victory. It's so small that he had no choice but to say the only way this could have happened is because God did it. It doesn't matter that he was strategic and went by night. If you have 300 soldiers and going against 10,000 soldiers, it doesn't matter if you have night, you needed God on your side. It's really a fulfillment of what God promised Abraham in Genesis 12. He said, I'll bless those who bless you, and I'll curse those who dishonor you. And that's what we see here in the fulfillment of God's promises to Abram. Here's our quick application, friends. Here, I think, is a picture of Jesus. Why is it a picture of Jesus? Because sometimes you and I will make decisions that drive us deeper into our sin. We pursue wealth and power, and then we look back, that was a bad decision. And it feels like we're in the midst of a spiritual battle because family is tough, relationships are tough, we don't feel existentially happy and fulfilled, and we feel life is coming down on us, and we realize we've made a really bad choice because we were like Lot. We didn't choose God, we lifted our eyes, and we chose the glories and the idols of this world, and now we're in a predicament. And the reason that Abraham is a picture of Jesus is because Jesus still comes after you and I because we are like Lot to God. We didn't deserve it. We were selfish. We chose the things of this world more than the glories of God. We deserve to die in our sin. But Abram, when he looks at Lot, he springs into action. He doesn't say, my good-for-nothing nephew. He says, I'm going after him. I'm going to pursue him. He doesn't deserve it, but I'm going to go and save my nephew, just like Jesus saved you and me, because Lot is a picture of us, and Abraham is a picture of Jesus, a picture of grace, a picture of God's love pursuing his people who leave after him. Lot deserves nothing, especially his loving uncle, Abram, but he gets him anyways. Here's the rough application, friends. I've just said that you and I are like Lot, but on a human relational level, every one of you has a lot in your life. Someone in your heart, if you're really honest, that person irks me, offended me. You had a falling out. You disrespect him. They disrespected me. Everyone has somebody who's like Lot who you think has no loyalty, disobeyed me, rejected me, went behind my back. I don't like that person. And the challenge and application here with battle for Abraham's heart and his faith is to realize that the lots of your life are God's opportunity for you to pursue them, to reconcile with them, to love them, to pray for them. And the only way that you're going to be able to genuinely and authentically love and pursue the lots of your life is to realize that first and foremost, you were a lot to God. You ran away, but God pursued you. And that changes and transforms you so that you could reach out and chase after those who are the difficult people in your life to cultivate a community of grace and love and reconciliation, slowly but surely. Who are the lots in your life? 
that's the real hard-pressing question. It's easy to engage your friends. We all know it's 10 times harder to engage the lots of your life, the difficult people who know you, who have offended you, who are difficult to love. Maybe you've had a, a deep friendship and there's a fracturing and there's been a brokenness in that relationship. Maybe, just maybe, God is telling you, in the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ, pursue the lot of your life. That's what Abraham shows us. And this leads us to our last point. It tells us then, actually, as I've already alluded to, that we're all in the same battle, aren't we? We're all engaged in the battle for our hearts as God, by his grace, fights for us. Let me talk about the battle here. The word king is in chapter 14 28 times. You know, that tells you it's about nations, it's about battles, about war. As I said, five kings from Canaan, four kings from Babylon. Uh, these are, in the midst of this, there's a mysterious figure, Melchizedek, who's also a king and also a priest. So there's 10 kings that are named, but the word king is there 28 times. But here's the beauty of really the, the gospel in, the, in chapter 14. Abram, on the human level, who doesn't have the title king, probably on this story and on earth, was God's faithful warrior who pursued Lot. And actually, in the character of God, Abram shows himself to be the greatest king of all, out of all the ten kings listed here potentially, or at least better than the other nine. Here's the thing. In verses 17 to 24, we see the real battle, the battle for Abraham's faith, the battle for Abraham's heart. Because after Abram took his 318, defeated the armies, took all their plunder, their goods, their wealth, and their people, and came back home, Abram comes back. There are two kings that walk out to Abram. Now, literally, it's setting up this sort of almost parable-like story to say for Abraham, two kings are coming out to you. Which one will you bow to? It's a battle for his heart. You have the king of Salem, who is Melchizedek. His name means king of righteousness. He's the king of Salem, which is probably a shortened version of Jerusalem, which means peace. So you have Melchizedek, the king of righteousness, and the king of peace coming out to him to bless him. Then you have the king of Sodom, who epitomizes tyranny and evil. You know, the king of Sodom is basically, you could tell even the language, Melchizedek comes out to give something to Abram, a blessing. The king of Sodom comes out to take something from Abram. That's why he has a choice to make. It's a battle for his heart. And the king of Sodom comes out and he says, give me the people, you keep the money. He's making a transaction here. Give me the people, but you get to keep the money. I'll keep what's mine, and then you keep the money. You keep the treasure, the money, the goods. Do you know why the king of Sodom does this? It's because he, he ain't no king for any random reason. He's political and he's savvy. And when he's bartering this deal, and back then, Abram probably should have given the king of Sodom everything. That's just their ancient Near Eastern practice. But Sodom, the king of Sodom is saying, you keep the money, just give me the people. And the reason he does this is because if Abram says yes, then the king of Sodom has made Abram his vassal, made him his servant. Basically says, I want to be your king. Because if I give this to you, you promise me allegiance, you promise me your loyalty. That's what the king of Sodom is trying to do. He's trying to make him his servant, his vassal. He wants to be king over Abram. But Abram says, no, 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 I'm not going to do that. 
Because he, Abram, in verse 22, what does he say? In verse 22, it says, Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. He's saying, the king that I worship has everything under his hands. And he's basically saying, I'm not going to bow to you because God is my king. God will reward me. I don't need your plunder. I don't need your money. I don't need your wealth. You take everything because I don't want to be your vassal. I don't want to be your servant. I'm not going to bow down to you. I'm going to bow to God most high, his possessor of heaven and earth. He is my king, and I give my life to him. There's this missiologist, Johann Hermann Bavink. He's a missions professor from the Free University of Amsterdam, traveled the world back in his day and age, went to different cultures, went to different nations, different languages, different churches. And in his book, he wrote this one little phrase that was very catchy. He says, as he traveled the globe experiencing different cultures, there's a commonality between all humanity. And he phrased it and said, there are magnetic points of the human heart. And what he meant by that is that no matter what nation, age, culture, generation, there's something common to all humanity that in the heart of humanity, there are the same magnetic points that attract the hearts in different ways. That's why wherever you go, people are attracted to money, attracted to love, attracted to power. But this is what he said. He said, no matter what culture, no matter what language, no matter what region, no matter what philosophy, one of the common points that pulls the magnet of the human heart is the universal desire for a good king. Isn't that true? Well, we don't live in a monarchy but we all gravitate towards a good ruler. That's why we're so angry about politics, because we all want a good president, however we want to define that. We want a good pastor. We want a good small group leader. We want a good governor. We want a good CEO, a good manager. Everybody wants that, no matter what part of the spectrum that you lie on, because I think Johan Bavink was correct one of the essential fundamental points of every human is a universal desire for a good king. And that's why this passage shows us that that universal desire can only be filled in Jesus Christ, the heavenly king. Let me show you why. Well, I said that Abram probably was the greatest king in this passage because he was valiant and he was God's warrior But here's where, towards the end of the chapter, things take a turn. Abram begins to recede into the shadows. He he falls back into the background, becomes the second best king, because in verses 18 to 20, there's this mysterious figure, Melchizedek, who comes onto the scene. One Old Testament scholar said that Melchizedek is the most complex subject in all of biblical studies. (laughs) I don't know if I agree with that, but that's very telling. Abram fades into the background. He's no longer the most important person in this story. He's a second player. And think about this. He just won a cosmic battle. Abram did. It's the height of his leadership up until this point, the height of his conquering, the pinnacle of his kingship. But then he becomes number two and fades into the background because he's upstaged in verses 18 to 20 by this guy Melchizedek. Man, Melchizedek, he's a cool dude. He's really cool. You know why? Because he's mysterious. 
And I had a friend when I was like mid-20s. Both of us were single. My friend just got rejected. I think the fourth time <laughs> trying to find a girlfriend, had a heart-to-heart just kind of catching up at night, and he said to me, Will, I think the reason I get rejected so much is because the key is to be mysterious, <laughs> create intrigue, but he was such an open book. And I was telling my friend, I don't think that's what you want to do, but I get the point of what he's saying. Melchizedek is a cool dude because he's mysterious, he's random, he doesn't make sense, he doesn't fit into the Old Testament or new, because they say, if you want a job today in the 21st century, you need remarkable skills and a remarkable resume. Maybe remarkable connections, but you need wonderful skills and marketable resumes if you want a job today. But if you wanted a job back in the Old Testament, you didn't need a remarkable resume and you didn't need a remarkable skill set. You need a remarkable dad because it was all about the genealogies. It was all about succession. It was all about your family tree, about your family and your genealogy. So it's very telling that the fact that Melchizedek, who's sort of this mysterious great figure, doesn't have a dad. We don't know his mom is. There's no genealogy. And it tells us implicitly when the gospel comes in, it's going to break worldly definitions and worldly parameters. The book of Genesis, if you didn't realize this, on some level is structured into 10 genealogies. The whole structure of Genesis is 10 genealogies with stories in between. It's tracing the seed of the promise to say who's going to be the Savior, who's going to be the Messiah, whose dad is going to be whose, whose son is going to be whose. And then we come into Melchizedek and he asks the question, who in the world is this guy? Does he have a son? Who's his dad? What's his genealogy? And yet the Bible places him as saying, no dad, no genealogy, the greatest order of priests. Now you kind of fast forward centuries later, you flip over to a book like Hebrews in chapter 7, you read about Melchizedek, and what does the author of the New Testament say? Almost the same thing. He has no mother, he has no father, he has no burial place. No beginning of days or end of days. He comes from nowhere. He never dies. He's never born. There's no genealogy in the book of genealogies. Even John Calvin has once said this. This Melchizedek, whoever he was, is presented before us without any origin story as if he had dropped from the clouds and his name is buried without any mention of death. No one knows who he is. The author of Hebrew doesn't know, but author of Hebrews, he gives us a little bit of a hint. You know what he says in Hebrews chapter 7? Hebrews says, let's take this mysterious figure, this tall, dark shadow, this strange figure that has no genealogy, beginning, or end. And the author of Hebrews says, we don't know much about him, but we know this. He's a shadow of Jesus. He's a forerunner of Christ. He's a type of Jesus Christ. And Jesus is better than him. This tells us, friends, that there is a king who stands before all kings and above all kings and behind all kings. This king doesn't have a birthright, doesn't have a bloodline, doesn't have a genealogy. He doesn't get his kingship merely from his father in succession. But there is a king who stands above and in and above and through and stands in through all of this in the order of Melchizedek. And his name is Jesus, who rules and reigns in righteousness. 
Melchizedek, maybe he's a pre-incarnate version of Jesus. I don't know. Old Testament doesn't know. Moses didn't tell us in Genesis. Author of Hebrews doesn't tell us in the New Testament. Maybe Melchizedek is a prefigurement, but we at least know he's a type, an appetizer, a foreshadow of a true and better king in Jesus Christ, better than the Babylonian kings, better than the king of Sodom, better than Abraham. He is God's very own king that rules over your life. You ready for more? There's something really beautiful about this passage. When you look at Melchizedek, who may be pointing to Jesus, we realize that for the first time in biblical history, this king is also a pastor. He's a priest. Because in the last verses of chapter 14, what does Melchizedek do? He basically gives a feast. There's bread and wine. Maybe it's communion. I'm not sure. But then he gives a benediction and blesses him. Do you know who gives benedictions? It's only priests that do that. Pastors. It doesn't, it's not kings. It's the priest that blesses the people. In the Old Testament, the king and the priest were always separate. They had different roles. They were in different departments. But for the first time, Genesis 14 is asking, could it be possible that there's one guy who's a king but also a wonderful pastor and priest? Is that possible? And the New Testament answers and says, yeah, it is possible. Because Melchizedek points to the true and greater priest king of Jesus Christ. The lion who rules in authority and passion and righteousness, but also the priest who's humble and sacrifices himself once for all as the lamb of God upon the cross of Jesus Christ that gave you forgiveness and shed his blood for you. How do I know that Jesus Christ is really the king and the priest? Well, the greatest act of a priest is going to be sacrifice, for the once-for-all sacrifice is Jesus Christ giving his life to forgive you and me. And when you read the Gospels, especially John, when it comes to the passion narrative about the priestly work of Jesus sacrificing himself as the great priest of giving himself on the cross as the lamb that was slain, the world's greatest act of a pastor-priest in Jesus Christ upon the death of the cross, in that passion narrative, do you know what the number one title of John talking about the priestly work of Jesus in John chapter 17 to 20? It's not the word priest. It's the word king. Did you know the word king is a word that appears more than any other single word in the passion narrative to Jesus? Do you remember when Pilate was standing before the crowd and he said to them, do you want Barabbas? Or do you want this other guy? And Acts chapter 3 tells us that Barabbas was a robber and a murderer. And what's the choice between? It doesn't say, do you want Barabbas or Jesus? It says, do you want Barabbas or this king? And with all the crowd, Paul tells us and shouted, we want Barabbas. We hate this king. And then what did he do? They stuck a crown on Jesus' head and blood poured down his face. And they put a fake purple robe around him. Purple was the color of royalty, and mocking Jesus said, look at the king of the Jews. And after he was beaten, Pilate brings them out again to the crowd, and he says this, behold your king. And they say, kill him and crucify him. And Pilate says, shall I crucify your king? And the chief priest says, we have no king but Caesar. Is it possible then that one person could be the perfect king who rules and reigns in righteousness, but the perfect pastor who gives himself in sacrifice? 
the Gospel of John is saying absolutely true, and that perfect priest king is here over you, forgiving your sins, cleansing you, giving you new life in his priestly work upon the cross. But he also says, once he's died for you, he now rules over you. Paul Tripp once said in an interview when he spoke across the globe at Christian churches, he says one gap that he sees in the church is that Christians tend to be really good in the past, believing in Jesus, getting his forgiveness. And they're really good about the future. Gonna go to heaven, no more pain or sin. But where Christians are really bad is understanding the gospel in the present, that Jesus is your king now, that he rules over you. And this is what he says, Paul Tripp. There is a king, perhaps the greatest life lesson, there is a king, and it's not you. And that means you're not the center of the world. It's not about your wants, and it's not about your preferences. It's not about your needs. Jesus is the center of your world, and you orbit around him. But the good news is that since you're not the king of your life, you don't have kingly burdens. You don't have the weight of the world on you. That's what brings anxiety and stress and uncertainty, because you assume that the world is around you and that you're king of your life, then you have kingly burdens and kingly responsibilities, and that's why you can't fall asleep at night, and that's why you're stressed, because you're trying to expand the circle of your power beyond what the gospel allows you to be, because you're not the king of the universe, Jesus is. And that means if Jesus truly is the ruler of your life, he is in control. And everything that used to give you worry and stress in the past you could be rest assured that Jesus rules over all of that for you and for the church. And that we bring all our life's aspirations and our daily decisions and our aspirations and goals and to say, because I live in the kingdom of God under King Jesus, the agenda of my life, the methods of my life, the strategies of my life, the priorities of my life are going to be Christocentric and gospel-centered. How do I use my money? How do I use my time? How do I obey my parents? How do I parent my children? How do I think about work? How do I make decisions about serving? It's no longer does it fit my preferences and my personality traits. It's really what does Jesus want me to do? Because he is king of the Jews and king of the Gentiles because he's the king of the church of Jesus Christ. You're a priest king. You're king priest. You're a lion-hearted lamb in your lion-like, lamb-like lion. That is who Jesus is for you. Under the providence of God. So look to him, embrace him, receive him. Grow in him as he offers himself to you. Let's pray. Thank you so much, Lord, for the gospel of Jesus that you have shown us really a king who rules and reigns and fulfills the desires of our hearts to want to be loved and seen and want justice and peace to be in society, in this world, and in the church. And that Jesus is that perfect and righteous king. And he's also that priest who loves us and gave his life for us. Help us to grow in that truth and be able to apply it in the areas of our lives, God. May we worship you in spirit and truth even as we continue uh, to worship you now. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.